Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the evening of November 25th, 1988, two teenage boys were engaging in their favorite pastime prowling the streets of Masato, Japan, in search of their next victim. 18-year-old Hiroshi Miyano and 16-year-old Shinji Minato belonged to a gang of delinquents that had already developed a taste for violence, in spite of their young age. More specifically, the boys favored crimes against women, such as rape and robbery. Sometime around 8.30 p.m., 17-year-old Junko Furuta caught Hiroshi's eye. She had just finished a shift at her part-time job and was headed back home on her bike, eager to catch the final episode of her favorite television show. She never got to see it. On Hiroshi's direction, Shinji ran up to the girl, kicked her off her bike, and took off down the street. Moments later, Hiroshi swooped in under the pretense of being a concerned bystander and helped a disoriented Junko to her feet. He told her that he knew the person who knocked her down and warned her that Shinji was dangerous and probably armed. Furthermore, he said it was likely that her assailant was still in the area, and being the young, beautiful girl that she was, she really should have someone walk her home. The good cop, bad cop routine worked. She accepted Hiroshi's offer to accompany her back to her house, fully unaware of the sinister intentions hidden under his mask of chivalry. Instead of taking Junko home, he led her to an abandoned warehouse nearby, where he proceeded to force himself onto her. He told the young girl that he was a member of the Yakuza and threatened to kill her if she dared to scream, run, or resist. Afterward, he took her to a nearby hotel and raped her again. Then, he called his buddies to brag about what he had done. They'd kidnapped and gang-raped girls in a similar manner before Junko's abduction, and they always released them afterward. But this time, a boy named Joe Agura suggested that they keep their latest victim. At roughly 3 a.m., Hiroshi brought Junko to a local park to meet up with his three friends, including Shinji Minato. They went through her backpack and found a notebook full of personal information, including her address. They threatened to send the Yakuza after her family to keep her compliant and took her to Shinji's house, which was their unofficial hangout spot. Months later, Junko Furuta's body was found in a 55-gallon drum filled with concrete. She had been tortured for an agonizing 40 days before finally succumbing to her injuries. This is Monsters.
Junko Furuta was born in Misato, Saitama Prefecture, on January 18, 1971. She was born and raised there with two brothers, one younger and one older. At the time of her abduction, she had been attending Yashiomanami High School where she earned high grades. She was pretty and quite popular with her classmates and had hopes of one day becoming an idol singer. She was also a hard worker. Since October of 1988, she'd been working part-time at a factory that molded plastics in order to earn the money for the trip she planned to take after graduation. On top of that, she already had her next gig lined up. She had recently accepted a position at an electronics store, which she was due to start once she finished up her last few months of school. Her four abductors, however, were the polar opposite. Hiroshi Miyano was the oldest, and he was the ringleader of the group. His father made good money as a salesman, while his mother earned a respectable living as a piano teacher. His parents fought often, though, and by the time he was in elementary school, he was already exhibiting some aggressive and delinquent tendencies such as shoplifting and vandalism. His time in junior high seemed to go much more smoothly. After graduating, he was accepted into a private high school on a judo scholarship. He was a passionate and devoted judo student, often winning or coming in runner-up during competitions. Unfortunately, though, the positive changes he'd begun to make wouldn't stick. Around the same time, he joined a motorcycle gang. In March of the next year, he was charged with vandalizing his school. In July, he was given probation for various offenses. He quit the motorcycle gang, and for a year or so afterward, he seemed to do remarkably well and got good reports from his probation officer. But once his probation ended, he went right back to his old ways. At the time of Junko's kidnapping, he had been living with his girlfriend. She was the elder sister of 17-year-old Yasushi Watanabe, another member of Hiroshi's squad of sadists. Hiroshi had plans to marry Yasushi's sister and briefly worked a manual labor job in order to save up money for their wedding. But the pay wasn't that great, so he started looking for other means to supplement his income. Eventually, he joined the Yakuza as a Chimpira, which is a low-ranking member of the gang. Chimpira are often young delinquents and they cut their criminal teeth on things like purse snatching, assault, and burglary. But Hiroshi wasn't just in it for the money, he was also in it for the power trip. And like a lot of power tripping psychopaths, his favorite way to impose his will on others was through a litany of sex crimes. Eventually, his girlfriend realized the extent of his evil and decided to break things off, although her own brother remained in Hiroshi's circle and continued to participate in the group's various misdeeds and transgressions. On October 27th, two days after Junko disappeared, her family called the police. The boys had made Junko call her mother three times and had her say that she decided to run away from home, but that she was staying with some friends and was doing okay. They also had her phone the police station to inform them that she was alive and well, which prompted them to call off the investigation. With all hope of being rescued ripped away from her, it's impossible to imagine the terror she must have felt. To make matters even worse, she was trapped in the Minato residence, with Shinji's parents fully aware of her presence. 
At first, she was forced to pose as Shinji's girlfriend, but they dropped the act once they realized that his parents weren't going to intervene. Because, you know, why would they? On the night of November 28th, Hiroshi brought over two other friends, Tetsuo McNamara and Koichi Ihara. The boys all gathered in Shinji's room, drinking copious amounts of cough syrup and taking turns with their terrified hostage. At one point, one of them even decided to insert a match into her vagina and light it on fire. It was an unquestionably horrific experience for Junko, but her kidnappers were just getting warmed up. In early December, Junko desperately tried to escape her hellish prison, only to be caught and punished severely. Enraged by her attempt, Hiroshi burned her ankle with a lighter. Then, they humiliated her by forcing her to dance naked and masturbate in front of them before inserting foreign objects such as an iron bar or a bottle into her rectum. She was also forced to spend a night on the balcony in below freezing temperatures while half naked, which could have been enough to kill her in itself if it wasn't for her superhuman will to live. At times, they would force her to drink extreme amounts of milk or water at one time, or make her smoke multiple cigarettes at once. As the days blurred into weeks, the repeated beatings and sexual assaults had taken their toll. She had begun to lose control of her bladder, too weak to take herself downstairs to use the bathroom, and spent most of her time lying on the floor of Shinji's room. Around mid-December, Hiroshi accidentally stepped in a pool of her urine, and the boys repeatedly punched her in her face, rendering her almost unrecognizable by the time Hiroshi dropped by the next day. They seemed to get a horrifying sense of satisfaction from disfiguring the helpless girl, and Hiroshi was struck with a particularly savage idea. After doling out a couple of punishing blows to her body, he doused her hands and thighs with lighter fluid and set her alight. But it still wasn't over. Once the fire went out, while Junko was begging for death, he doused her again and lit her up a second time. She survived, and her wounds quickly filled with a festering infection that oozed pus and gave off a smell so putrid that her tormentors were no longer interested in her sexually. But that didn't mean they were done with her. Junko Furuta's final day of life was an excruciating one. On January 4, 1989, Hiroshi was in a particularly bad mood. He'd lost a hefty sum of money on a game of Mahjong the previous night and wanted someone to take it out on, so he decided to pour lighter fluid on Junko's battered body for a third time. According to the boys, she made a feeble attempt to extinguish the blaze, but eventually slipped into a hazy state of half-consciousness and became unresponsive. Despite her lack of a reaction, they continued to punch and kick her, covered her whole face with molten candle wax, and balanced a small, lit candle on each eye. Eventually, one of her captors kicked her so hard that she fell into a stereo and began seizing. By this point, even if they had no intention of killing her outright, it would have been abundantly clear that she had both feet on the welcome mat right at death's door. The realization didn't faze them in the slightest. In fact, they proceeded to wrap their hands in plastic bags in order to keep Junko's blood and pus from getting all over them. 
they continued to beat her for around two hours and repeatedly dropped a heavy iron exercise ball onto her stomach, although she barely reacted anymore. Finally, after 40 days of the most incomprehensible cruelty imaginable, Junko Furuta drew her final breath and slipped away. The group wrapped her remains in a blanket and placed her in a duffel bag. While she had been alive, Junko told them how much she had wished she had gotten the chance to catch the last episode of her favorite show, so Hiroshi found a copy of the episode and put it in the bag with her. Later, after her body was found, he explained that it wasn't a gesture of pity or remorse. He simply didn't want her ghost to haunt him. Of course. After that, they put the bag into a 55-gallon drum and filled it with concrete. Then they drove to Koto, Tokyo, and eventually left her in a cement truck. On January 23, 1989, Hiroshi Miyano and Joe Agura were arrested for the recent kidnapping and rape of another girl. A search of both addresses found women's underwear. When they were brought in for questioning, Hiroshi immediately confessed to Junko's murder, believing that Joe must have already done the same. In reality, he hadn't. In fact, the police were questioning them about an unrelated murder. In a beautiful moment of karma, Hiroshi offered to show them where the body was, not realizing that Junko Furuta wasn't even on the investigator's radar. They found the drum the next day. Sadly, her body was so disfigured that she had to be identified through fingerprints. Hiroshi, Joe, Shinji and Yasushi were all arrested, along with Shinji's brother and several other accomplices. Tetsuo Nakamura and Koichi Ahara, two of the friends that Hiroshi frequently invited over to join in the abuse, were charged with rape after their DNA was found in Junko's body. Given the fact that every defendant involved in the case was considered a juvenile at the time, their identities were sealed by the courts. However, minors or not, many people believed that a person capable of committing such an atrocity didn't deserve the protection of anonymity. It wasn't long before journalists managed to find out their names and publish them. All four of the main offenders pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death, which was a lesser charge than murder. During his trial, it was revealed that Hiroshi Miyano had, quote, an organic brain defect, which was argued to be the cause of his horrific behavior. Despite this defense, a lower court sentenced him to 17 years in prison. He appealed his sentence, but in yet another delicious dose of karma, the Tokyo High Court added an additional three years to his sentence. Apart from a lifetime sentence, 20 years is the second longest sentence given in the Japanese justice system, and yet somehow, 20 years just feels like a woefully inadequate term given the nature of his crime and his role as the ringleader. Eventually, Hiroshi served his time and was released. He moved in with his mother, but ended up getting arrested once more in 2018 and charged with attempted murder after beating a man with a metal rod and slicing his throat. Murderers will be murderers. Yasushi Watanabe was sentenced to a measly three to four years, although the sentence was ultimately extended to five to seven. Joe Ogura, who was said to have bragged about his role in Junko's death, and whose mother vandalized Junko Furuta's grave for, quote, ruining her son's life, 
served eight years in a juvenile facility before his release in August of 1999. He proceeded to change his name, but not his ways. He was arrested in July of 2004 for beating a man he believed his girlfriend was seeing. On this particular occasion, he tracked the man down, shoved him into the vehicle, and took him to his mother's bar. Once they got there, he beat the man for four hours straight and repeatedly told him that he'd killed before and knew how to get away with it. For this particular assault, Joe was sentenced to another seven years. He has since been released. As for Shinji Minato and his family, well, when asked why they allowed this girl to be so horrifically tortured under their own roof, his parents said that they were frightened of their son, who had been physically abusive with them in the past. Neither his parents nor his brother were ever charged, although Shinji was given a sentence of five to nine years. But even though they were never charged in her death, the Furutas filed a civil suit against Shinji's parents. Additionally, Hiroshi Miyano's mother ended up paying them the equivalent of $425,000 in court-ordered compensation. Junko Furuta was laid to rest on April 2, 1989. The employer she had planned to work for after graduation presented her parents with the uniform she would have worn if she'd been able to see her first day on the job. They placed it in her casket. At her class's graduation ceremony, the school principal gave the Ferudas their daughter's long-anticipated diploma. It was a bittersweet moment for everyone that knew and loved her, as evidenced by the touching message one friend wrote in her memory. Quote, Jun Chan, welcome back. I have never imagined that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we made for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard that the principal has presented you with a graduation certificate, so we graduated together, all of us. Jun Chan, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. The case of Junko Furuta is undeniably one of the most horrific instances of torture in the modern age, and it's made all the more sickening by the fact that a group of high school-aged kids were capable of such a heinous crime. But even though we don't often think of children as cold-blooded killers, make no mistake, no matter their age, a monster will always be a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description.
Thanks again and be safe. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.